Good morning, Highland Community Church. It's good to be with you today. If you have your Bibles, would you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9? Today we'll look at verses 24 to 27. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27. Let's ask God to guide our time. Father God, we thank you that we can gather together. We ask, Lord, that you would guide what... I say, and what we understand from your word, the scriptures. Father, we want to not be hearers of the word only, but doers as well. And so we ask that you would impart your truth to our hearts, to our lives, that we might live in accordance with your perfect will. We love you, we honor you, and we desire to live for your glory. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Growing up in upstate New York, I loved to ski. Within about 15 miles of my house, there were a half a dozen small ski resorts. When you would get to that time in the winter where there would be a break, here we call it spring break. And a lot of people try and go south. They try and get some vitamin D, a little fun in the sun, right? But I don't recall that growing up. My recollection is we called it Ski Week. I even think in the publications from the schools, back then they called it Ski Week, not Spring Break. And very few people went south. If they didn't stay home, they went north or they went east. If they went north, they went up to the Adirondacks to ski. Even adults would take some of time off from work. They would go perhaps to a mountain called Gore Mountain, which is a very large, wonderful ski resort. Or maybe they'd go up to Whiteface Mountain. Some of you have heard of Whiteface. It held the Olympics both in 1932 and 1980. What you may not know is that Whiteface was built on the wrong side of the mountain. Although it's about a 3,500-foot vertical drop, it doesn't have much snow. It has all ice because it's built on the side of the mountain where the wind blows. It blows the snow off and ice remains. Imagine doing the gates with a 3,500 vertical drop on solid ice. I'm telling you, Rib Mountain's looking better and better, is it not? And if you went east, you might go to Vermont. Maybe you go to Stowe or Stratton or Sugarbush, or maybe you go all the way to Sugarloaf in Maine, which is one of the largest ski resorts here in the United States. There are literally dozens of ski resorts out east with vertical drops between 1,500 and 3,000 vertical feet. And so for this spring break or ski week, people would go either locally to the ski resorts or if they had the opportunity, they'd go north or they'd go east. I remember one particular year, my family, along with another family, when we went east, we went to Killington. Now, Killington has about 180 or 190 legitimate runs. We're not talking about little part runs, and you call them three trails. 180, 190 legitimate runs on five different mountains, some of them up to five miles long. It has a vertical well over 3,000 feet. It is 60 black or double black diamond ski resort runs. And I would go and with my friends, we would try and find some moguls. We called it big air. 
It's kind of funny because that was back in the days without helmets and what we call big air is nothing like the aerial wizardry of teens today. I'm amazed at what the teens do on the ski resorts and on the moguls and the jumps today. We would never have thought of it. But what we called big air, we would get these little moguls and jumps and we would have a good old time. One particular day when we were at Killington, I saw that they had the gates open and Killington has about a 3,000 vertical drop. Now, of course, the gates wasn't all 3,000 vertical feet, but it was a good amount. And on this particular day, you could give them, I think, about $5 and you would be timed and they would tell you at the bottom if you did lousy or so-so or good or outstanding or if you were on the podium. If your time was good enough, you would get a bronze, silver, or gold, which was, I think, a tin metal painted bronze, silver, or gold. And so we thought, you know what? We don't really do the racing thing, but this could be a lot of fun. Now, I know it's not polite to brag, especially at church, especially on a Sunday, but I got to tell you, El Numero Uno here, I was on the podium, not in bronze, not in silver, I banged out a gold medal, and I was strutting my stuff. I was feeling good. And then my friend followed me, and he got a gold. And I wasn't very happy about that. And then my sister followed me, and, and she got a gold. And then my mother, great sport, but not necessarily the greatest athlete, she followed, and she banged out a gold. And all of a sudden, I realized... It was a participation trophy. It didn't matter what your time was. If you forked over five bucks, you got a gold. And so I tossed that participation trophy, that little medal, into the garbage. It wasn't going home with me. I ran the race. I got the prize. And the prize was utterly worthless. Well, what Paul is talking about today is running the Christian race. And running the Christian race, the Christian walk, living in such a way that you so honor God that when you get to heaven, which is not something you earn, but when you get to heaven, you have earned extra eternal rewards and you get the prize. He says, run in such a way that you get the prize. I want to pick up in our text and I want to read from 1 Corinthians 9. Let's read verses 24 to 27. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I don't run aimlessly. I don't box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body. I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now let's recall our context. We talked a little bit about it last week, right? And in verses 19 to 23, we were told that in areas that are non-biblical, where the Bible speaks, we do. What the Bible says, we believe. Where God says, go, we go. Where God says, don't, we don't. We never compromise biblical truth, but in those areas of preferences, in those areas where we might have a personal value or a personal desire, 
but it's not a biblical one, we can give that up if in doing so, in some way it advances the kingdom of God. If in doing so, it some way causes people who may be far from the Lord to say, I'm interested in this Christianity thing. We can give up our personal rights, our personal liberties, and we ought from time to time, if in doing so, it advances God's kingdom. So that's the setting, and on top of that setting, Paul says that as you run, as you walk, as you live the Christian life, do so in a manner that is like winning the race. Now, I think this athletic metaphor probably played pretty well to Paul's original audience. Remember that Corinth is in Greece, and the Olympic Games actually predate Paul's writing by 800 years. Now, of course, the modern Olympics begin in Athens in 1896, but the Olympic Games in Olympia, Greece, is 800 B.C. on forward. There was also a second set of games called the Isthmian Games. And I think that's what Paul's referring to because they took place within 10 miles of where this letter was originally sent. And in the Isthmian Games, they competed in a half a dozen events. Boxing, javelin, discus, jumping, running, and wrestling. Now, I don't quite get why Paul messes around with running and boxing, and he doesn't elevate wrestling because, of course, wrestling was the most exciting of the six. But he's talking to elite athletes. He's talking to an area that is steeped in athletics, and they know all about running the race in such a way in order that you may win the prize. Now, understand that in the Isthmus Games, if you wanted to be a part of them, you couldn't just show up. It wasn't like Killington where I paid five bucks and in paying five bucks I get to participate and then they give me a participation medal which I throw in the garbage. It's not like that. To be in the Isthmian Games requires that you have a pedigree in other athletic events. You've been on the podium elsewhere and then you sign up like 10 months in advance, right? And you sign up and you train and you buffet your body. Now let's be honest, the Isthmian Games in Paul's time was only for men. Now we're going to carry the illustration for men and women. And the Isthmian Games, they didn't have what I would consider to be proper dress. Oy vey, it kind of reminds me of being in the men's locker room at the Y. Some of you senior citizen men... Put on a little bit more, would you? Just, I'm just saying, just a little bit more. We're thinking of games in which both genders can run the race, the Christian race, and we're dressed appropriately. And so you have signed up, you have the pedigree, you sign up 10 months in advance, and you agree that you are going to buffet your body, you're going to follow a training regiment. You're going to have a coach that keeps you accountable. There'll be no McBurgers. There'll be no McFries. You've got to buffet your body. And if you do that in the end, then you will get to run the race. And let's be clear. Paul is clear. 
The goal is not just competing. It's not just running. It's to win the race. He says, do you not know that all who race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain the prize. Now that calls for a question, doesn't it? What exactly is the prize? It's clearly not salvation. It's clearly not heaven. There is nothing that you, I, we can do in order to win heaven. Heaven is achieved when we place our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. When Jesus, fully God, comes down to earth, lives a perfect life, willingly goes to the cross and dies a sinner's death. He dies on behalf of sin, our sin. Sin is a violation of God's word or thought or action or attitude. He dies as a payment of our sin, rises as evidence of life after the grave. When we believe and accept his death for our sin, we are given eternal life. Isn't that what Romans 10, 9 and 10 says? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So the prize is not eternal life. The prize is not heaven. That is received, not achieved, that is received by placing one's faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. The prize is eternal rewards. The prize is when God says, having received me as Savior, you have now, as an act of worship, an act of obedience, you have poured out your life, your time, your talents, your treasures. You have spent yourself, not just for yourself, but for kingdom pursuits. You have lived in such a way that you have advanced my kingdom, my goals, my desires. You have lived for me, and so now you have run the race in such a way that you receive the prize, and the prize is eternal rewards. Now, from time to time, I hear people say, well, I don't know. That idea of eternal rewards, that kind of seems real self-centered. Well, remember, we're spending ourselves, our time, our talents, and our treasures with the right attitudes as an act of worship. But as an added bonus and as an added motivation, Scripture says that we are shrewd to do this because God will graciously say, well done, good and faithful servant, enter my rest, and God will give us rewards. Now, you guys are a biblically literate bunch, so you're not at all surprised to know that there are dozens of passages in Scripture that talk about God giving rewards to the faithful for all of eternity. Let me read a half dozen or so to us. Revelation 22, verse 12. Behold, I, Jesus, am coming soon, bringing my recompense, my rewards, with me to repay each one for what he has done. God is coming. He is evaluating even now. He is watching how we're living, what we're doing with our time, our treasures, and talents. And when he comes, or when we go to him, we will receive the rewards for how we lived our, our worshipful lives and how we spent ourselves 
for his kingdom. 1 Corinthians 3, 8. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. We see the same thing in Matthew 16, verse 27. It says this. For the Son of Man, that's from Daniel 7, 13 and 14. It refers to Jesus. For Jesus is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. He's not talking about earning salvation. We can't earn salvation. It's a free gift through Christ, through faith in Jesus. But having believed in Christ as an act of worship, we spend ourselves in pursuit of kingdom principles and kingdom living. And God says, you can't outgive me. What you give me, I'm going to repay to you for all of eternity. 2 Corinthians 9, 6, very familiar passage to many of us. It says this. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows, that is, reaps a harvest here on earth, whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. We see the same thing in Luke 6, verses 22 and 23. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man, Jesus. Rejoice in that day, leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. There are literally dozens of verses in Scripture that say that as you and I expend ourselves, as we live out our Christian walk, as we are obedient to the Lord, as we use our time in order to serve the kingdom, as we use our treasures to give to kingdom pursuits as we expend the talents, the gifts that God has given us for kingdom endeavors, God notices, God records, and someday God is going to repay. Again, it is shrewd in the best sense of the word to be thinking as an act of worship with the right attitudes. I need to expend some of what God has entrusted to me in time and talent and treasure for the kingdom because I can't outgive God and God notices what I do in the flesh and when I get to eternity through faith in Jesus Christ, the Lord will say, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into my rest and he will give us Christian rewards. No wonder Paul says, run the race that you may win the prize. Now this is really where Paul's metaphor breaks down because we're really not running against one another. But if I were going to run against some of my coworkers, most of whom are much younger and more fit than I am, I'm going to choose a couple old geezers. I'm going to run against Dan Mack because he's already had a hip replacement and Dave Mahler because his oldest son is exactly my age. So I think if I'm going to run against someone, the best shot I've got is... Dan and Dave, and then we, we finish the race, and I'm on the gold, and they're on the silver and bronze, you know, all have won the race, right? Except this is where the metaphor breaks down. I'm actually not running against you. You're actually not running against me. We are living in accordance to biblical principles, and we are running the Christian race 
the Christian principles in such a way that when we get to heaven, God will say, you're gold, you're gold, you're gold, you're gold. And it won't be a participation uh, uh, trophy because not everyone is getting gold. Some are getting silver, some are getting bronze. Some aren't getting any additional rewards, but they are saved through faith in Jesus Christ. I love the way Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5.10. He said, we, he's writing to Christians, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one receives what is done in the body, that is, receives rewards for what we've done here. And then he said, whether good, agathos, or worthless, phalos. In other words, Scripture is rather clear. Everyone who is saved, who goes into heaven, is saved through faith in Jesus Christ. But some have not lived their life in a worshipful way. They will not get extra rewards. Well, heaven will still be wonderful, but less wonderful than it could be. And God will actually say in that judgment, which is not a judgment of condemnation. Remember Romans 8.1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We will never face condemnation if we know Christ, but we will lose rewards. And he says, some of you will be rewarded good, well done, good and faithful servant. And some will actually be declared worthless. I saved you by faith, Jesus will say. But as an act of worship, you did not live as responsibly to me as you should have. You didn't use your time, your treasures, your talents as you should have. It's worthless. So looking at the text, we are to run the Christian race, verse 24. We are to exercise self-control, verse 25. We are not to be aimless, spiritually speaking, verse 26. We are not to balk, spiritually speaking, as someone who misses the target, that is, the kingdom purposes, and hits the air. We are to discipline our bodies, verse 27. We are to keep our bodies under self-control, verse 27, lest we be disqualified, not from eternity, but from the prize, the extra rewards that God desires. This is really interesting. Paul says we are to exercise. Now, some of you guys regularly go to the Y, you gals and guys, or you go to the gym, or you're running outside. So you know that exercise, while fun, is also hard work. The word used for exercise is agondizomai, from which we derive the word agony. And a few of you just thought, amen, that's the first thing he said that's true. This sermon is agony. When will it end? Not very soon. I'm just getting started. So, the idea is in the Christian walk, we exercise, we expend ourselves, we discipline ourselves. The Christian walk is not to be a happy club. The Christian walk is not to be, hey, maybe I get a message periodically when I show up and then I don't really think about kingdom principles and I don't expend myself for kingdom pursuits. The Christian walk is about Agondizomai, it's about exercising ourselves on behalf of the kingdom. Sharing the gospel with others, that's exercise. Bringing an unbeliever to church, that's exercise. Giving up one's rights, one's preferences for the sake of the gospel, that's exercise. Maybe caring for the widow, 
or the poor or doing foster parenting or adoptive parenting for the orphan. That's exercise. Maybe it's getting involved in teaching in one-way club or Gen 180 or serving in the nursery or serving on the worship team. That's exercise. Giving the first fruits of our income to the Lord. That's exercise. In fact, Paul goes on to say that we need to discipline our bodies. It's a phrase that actually means give ourselves a black eye. Oy vey. What does that mean? He's certainly not advocating violence against self. No, it's a metaphor. He's saying that we buffet our body and sometimes no pain, no gain. Sometimes as we exercise, we have to put forth and it goes beyond what we would like to do. There's some strenuous exercise. We go beyond just the what's convenient in serving in the kingdom or what's convenient to give to the kingdom or what's convenient to give up for the kingdom. We go beyond that. We buffet our bodies in order for the kingdom to advance. I'd like to close by sharing an illustration of this. Her name is Marguerite de Navarre, Marguerite of Navarre. She lived uh, in the 1500s from just about 1498 to 1558, something like that, during the Reformation period. She was born a royal. She is the oldest daughter of, uh, or oldest sister of King Francis I of France. And she was also married to King Henry III of Navarre, so she was a queen. So she was royalty two different ways. Because she was of French descent, she was part of the universal church. She never left the universal church, but in every way, she was reformational. So much so that the Sorbonne University in France, some of the professors and the university itself condemned her and said that she ought to be put to death. Historians agree that this woman who was part of the universal church was so reformational that had she not been a queen, she would have been burned at the stake. Now this woman was utterly brilliant, and she had an elite education. I'm not saying elite education for a woman. She had an elite education for a man or woman, for anyone in her time. And she had an intellect. Now, all we have left of hers, officially, is her letters, which are so reformational, so deep, and so uh, drenched with theology that it's amazing. But I think that a number of the pamphlets that she paid to be printed, the reformational pamphlets that spread out all over Europe, I think she wrote many of those under somebody else's name. We know that... uh, She personally paid the salaries of some reformational pastors that traveled from country to country and village to village to preach the gospel. We know that she harbored some of the reformational individuals like Clement Moreau and John Calvin who were wanted and people wanted to put them to death and she actually harbored them and hid them. We know that She had audiences both with the popes and the reformers. That she single-handedly cleaned up the morality in abbeys as well as appealed to reformers to live God-centered lives. We know that she was a bridge, literally, between the Vatican and Geneva, between the universal church 
and the protest or Protestantism. And she didn't compromise her beliefs, even as somebody who is quite reformational in the universal church. In every way, this is a towering woman, a towering person in the Reformation. Even though she was royalty and could have lived a pretty easy life, she chose not to. She expended her wealth for kingdom purposes. She put her life on the line numerous times, and had she been a commoner, certainly she would have been burned at the stake. She ran the race well. I have no doubt that when she got to heaven, God said, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into my rest. And when you're looking for big mansions in the, the heavenly realm someday, look up Marguerite. I think it's going to be a huge mansion because she ran the race well. I trust that many of you are going to run or running the race well. If so, well done. Let's take the next step in running the race even better. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that salvation is not based on what we do, but based on what your son has done for us. Help us to place our faith in your son if we have not done so. And if we have, help us to expand our time our talents, our treasures, on kingdom pursuits. Sometimes even to give up our preferences and our liberties to advance the gospel, not to just do what is easy or pleasant, but sometimes to do what is hard, what is difficult, what is a Gandhi's oh my, what is even agonist exercise for the kingdom. Help us to expend ourselves for your glory. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.